One of the songs that we sang a little earlier, in fact, I think it's the first time we sang uh, this particular song, Blessed Be Your Name, talks about the idea that uh, we should consider God's name blessed both in a time of plenty and in a time of little, in good times and bad times. It's one of those messages of the Bible that seems to um, uh, permeate a lot of the New Testament, for sure, in fact, right the way through the Bible particularly, uh, we see it in the New Testament. And I would guess that for um, 21st century people is one of the most challenging issues for us to come to terms with. I've, I've called the, this afternoon's talk uh, the secret of being content. We don't live in a particularly content world, do we? Uh, we're not particularly content people. Uh, the famous uh, American scientist uh, Lewis Thomas said this, We are perhaps uniquely among the earth's creatures the worrying animal. We worry away our lives, fearing the future, discontent with the present, unable to take in the idea of dying, unable to sit still. <laughs> I think it's an interesting thought, isn't it? We are uniquely the worrying animal. I want to ask a question. Is that really how we are to be? Is that how we should be? Or is there a secret to something more? We've got here in our text this afternoon, which, <coughs> just to remind ourselves again, Paul is writing to a group of Christians who are going through, or potentially about to go through, all sorts of issues. And he is not writing in isolation. He is not writing from an idealistic point of view. He's writing from a Roman prison. It's really important that we keep that in mind. That it's easy, isn't it, sometimes to say certain things uh, when we're, if you like, saying it from, from a bit of comfort. You know, it's easy to say, oh, it'll be fine. Uh, you know, be content. You'll be okay. And that's, a, that's easy to say. And very often... You might think to yourself when somebody says that, yeah, but you don't know what it's really like. You don't know where I am. But one of the great things that we have by being able to step away and see what's going on in this particular uh, text is that Paul is not speaking with that kind of pat on the head, have a smarty kind of mindset. He's speaking from reality. He is actually facing death. Uh, and we come to this particular section, verse 10 through to 13. We can get that up on the screen. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That is powerful when we remind ourselves of precisely where he is, facing death, possibly. I'm content, even though I'm not sure whether I might be taken out tomorrow and have my head removed from my shoulders. I'm content. 
And he goes on to say, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learnt the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's a text that we're going to be looking at this afternoon. You might be sat thinking, <coughs> do you know what, I am actually quite, I'm quite a contented person. There's three things I want to do this afternoon. Firstly, I want to see that we all really are deep down discontents. Even if your first response is, I am actually quite a contented person. And to just stop and think about that, we are all discontented. Secondly, I want to see that we have here a model of how to be contented And thirdly, I want to see that there is a lasting contentment, a real contentment. So the first thing, we are really deeply discontented. We could be a little bit glib uh, and say that in lots of ways we can see that on the surface, can't we? You know, um, in the things that we want to buy, in the things that we want to do, in the fact that... um, It seems as though we, in lots of ways, technology, as a great example, just is continuously moving and moving and moving. Those of you who know me know that I'm quite into a bit of technology. I enjoy it. Uh, And then you realize, actually, it's just progressing at this incredible rate. and, uh, And whether it's computers or whether it's a phone or whether it's one thing or another... It just, it seems as though you, you can't keep up with this continuous process of change. And in fact, we, we find ourselves dissatisfied. You might, in fact, maybe this, is, maybe this is a bit of an age thing. You might sit there and think, yeah, it's not like it was. You know, when I, when I were a kid, it, it was, it, we weren't like that. When I were a kid, we were happy with a cardboard box in the middle of the road and all of that kind of stuff. Well, let's ju- I, I've been reading um, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. Uh, it's a fantastic insight into human nature written by Mark Twain. It's brilliant in looking at this life developing because it, it just reminds me that if you were thinking it's not like that, when I were a kid, well, actually, your childhood wasn't like uh, Huckleberry Finn's and Tom Sawyer's. But at the same time, reading it gave a little bit of a window into the fact that no matter where we are, we are discontented. He, He writes about Tom Sawyer, this young urchin kid who's, who's, um, He's just a wheeler dealer and a, and a kind of uh, gets people uh, passing on all sorts of stuff to him. And he, he, he gets people enthused about whitewashing the fence, and that, which he's been told to do as a punishment. Uh, and he ends up with all sorts of his mates giving him all sorts of stuff for the privilege of whitewashing the fence. And he says that he gets this piece of colored glass. And this is his prized possession. He's managed to persuade his mate to give him a piece of coloured glass to whitewash the fence. And then he comes across another friend who's got a dead rat on a string. 
Uh, everybody wants a dead rat on a string and he hasn't got one. And then you kind of think, yeah. It doesn't really matter whether it's the latest iPhone or whether it's a piece of glass compared to a dead rat on a string. There is something in us which no matter where we are, in whatever society, in whatever uh, context, we are always comparing ourselves to the next person in one way or another and finding ourselves dissatisfied. It might not be by possessions. And it might be that we are at a particular point in life where we actually do feel satisfied. Maybe we... Dissatisfaction can overtake us. It might be that at this point in time our relationships are fine and then we might realise that it doesn't quite work out. It might be that we've got through that and we are satisfied. It might be that we're at that point of saying, the one thing that holds me together is my integrity. Now, everything else can go. All sorts of things can be ripped away from me. But as long as people know that I am this kind of person, everything is okay. What when that goes? The person who's writing this from a prison knows what that is like. He knows what it is to be accused of all sorts of things. He knows what it is to be discredited. He knows what it is to be talked about as though he claims to be uh, one thing of people and behaves in a completely different way. He knows what it is to be ripped of his integrity. And he is still able to say, but I'm content. So there's my first kind of flag up warning. Don't think of discontentment as this shallow possessions thing. Discontentment can be at a deeper level of integrity. What about if you get through that? What about when it's not what other people think of you that is the problem? What about when the problem is what you think of about yourself? What about when it's you that have let yourself down. You know, it's one thing to have, um, I, I am this person, and, and I want everybody to know that I am that person, and my integrity gets torn to shreds, and people don't think of me as that person anymore. Well, at least you can stand there and say, yeah, but I know <laughs> that I'm that person. What about when you are no longer that person. When you are no longer the person that you expect yourself to be. When I am no longer the person that I expect myself to be. And my discontent 
is not no longer at a level of what other people think. It's that deep-seated tearing apart, falling at the, uh, ripping at the seams, discontentment <coughs> of what I am really like myself. If you haven't got there yet, I would suggest there is going to come a point in life where it is very, very likely where you realize that you are the kind of person that means that you are discontented, not in the light of other people, in the light of yourself. Maybe you've already got there. Maybe that's what you're hiding away in the cupboard. You've covered it over, you've just parked it, you just want to walk away from it. It's that thing which is there, and it nags and it gnaws, and no matter how many times you shut the door on it, it just keeps coming back. The person who is writing this, who's in a prison, knows what that is like. He's able to say, and, and you, the, the, you might find this, if you don't know anything of the Bible, you might find this hard to believe. You've heard of the Apostle Paul, probably, one of the greatest church leaders in the early part of the church. Many people would think of him as, as the greatest alongside Jesus. Peter, Paul, John, those great pillars of the church in the early days. He says, I am just the chief of sinners. I'm just the worst. That isn't some sort of backhanded slap me on the back so that you can say, do you know what, you're not really like that, Paul. You're a good guy. No, he knows. He's honest. He's able to say, that is what I am really like. I am the one who had uh, the clothes uh, of those, the coats of those who murdered Stephen at my feet. I am the one who authorized his death. I am the one with blood on my hands. I am the one who down the years has ripped families apart. I am the one who has dispossessed families. <coughs> that is what I am like. How can I live with that? How can I be content when the, the honesty is that's what I'm like? You know, we can, we can sham contentment. We can pretend by saying, I'll hide away all of the issues and gain a contentment by hiding them away. I can just live a life which makes me feel comfortable. Whereas he's saying, no, I can be totally open and honest about the reality of me. I can have my integrity ripped away from me. I can have <coughs> even my own identity of who I am honestly before me and I can still be content. He's actually writing this in the context of life's difficulties. I think that's really helpful because he's, he's actually, as we read it here, he's, he's thanking this church in Philippi for providing for him. That they've... Um, They've obviously been a great supporter to him. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. 
that, that's saying you, you, you've, you've been able to re-establish your support for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So there was a time when his definition of understanding their concern for him is not measured by whether they're giving. He knows that they're concerned for him and recognizes that there was a time when, even though he wasn't getting anything through from them, it wasn't that they weren't concerned, they just weren't able to. We don't know why. We don't know whether it was because, I don't know, maybe they weren't able to muster the funds. Maybe they didn't know where he was. That's quite likely. Word finally got through. Do you know where Paul is? He's, he's been in prison for six months. <laughs> maybe it was something like that. That's quite likely in, in the days before email and text. He's been in prison for six months. Oh, wow. Right, let's get some funds together and let's get some funds over to there and let's support him. And he's thanking and, and appreciative of the support that they've been. I think it's really interesting that we see here a picture of contentment which is not marked... He's not saying, I'm now content because I've received it. He's actually saying, I was content all along and I'm thankful that it's coming through. Here's a question for you out the back end of that. Is your contentment measured by the comfort of life at any particular time. I would say for most of us it is, isn't it? Our contentment is everything's going okay right at the moment. What about when it isn't? You know, this, is the, this isn't whether I've got the latest iPhone. This is about what life is going to be for the next period of time. Have I got a way to live. And he's saying, my contentment is not ebbing and flowing, increasing and decreasing by the events around me. Wouldn't you love to be in a situation? Wouldn't you love to have something going on inside which meant that you could live Day to day, no matter what is going on outside, and be content. So we are all deeply discontented. But we have a model of contentment in Paul here. Let me just explain that model a little bit more. Three things that give us a bit more of a window into Paul's contentment and points us in a direction of how we might be content. First thing, we see something rather surprising in verse 10. Look at the way it's worded. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. I thank the Lord 
because of what you have given to me. Humanly speaking, we would be saying, aren't you thanking the Philippine church for what they've given to you? But now he's, he's viewing it, let me try and describe it, almost like, um, it's like a triangle, isn't it? Paul and the Philippian church are at two corners at the base of the triangle. What connects them? The Lord. That's the connection that Paul sees. He sees we are connected, but the connection isn't just a parallel connection. Yeah, it works out practically that that the gifts that you've received for me to, to work through this, they've not journey DHL up to heaven and back down to me. Practically, in real terms, they've, they've travelled across. But the real connection is between you and the Lord and me and the Lord. He is the central focus of our relationship. But more than that, and this is where it gets really practical, on a day-to-day basis, think about this. He's saying this. I see the gift that I have received from you as coming from God. I thank the Lord for what I received from you. That is liberating. Because it works like this. What if he didn't receive a gift from the Philippian church for some reason. Well, he hasn't for a long time. What if they didn't work it out? He's able to sit in that situation and say, I'm in God's hands. The life that I'm living now is not outside of his plan. It's, it's total confidence that I'm in this prison cell and I'm still in his hands, and everything will, be, will work out. I don't rely for my security on, on things in this world. I'm in God's hands, because even though he's there, he knows that his main connection is with God, the Lord in heaven, his ascended Savior in Christ. So when something comes from over here and satisfies his need, he says, thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for what's been provided by these people over here. And they give with a mindset of giving first to the Lord. It comes across here, yeah, it works out like that. (coughs) How does that help with contentment? How do you feel? How much of a trigger to your discontentment, do you realize when, when somebody doesn't do what you think they ought to do? Somebody doesn't behave in a way that you think they ought to behave. They, they don't provide or they don't uh, recognize or whatever it might be. And you're sat here, they're sat there, they don't do what you think they ought to do. What does that do to you and to me? We end up discontented, don't we? We end up saying, that's not, you shouldn't do that. 
until we realise that the only way that any of us ever do any good to anybody else is by God's grace intervening in our lives so that we, we break through some of our selfishness <laughs> and we start to provide outside of ourselves. That is contentment when we realise that. It, it's a bit like this. We, we get discontented when people don't do what we want, yeah. But if our expectations are realistic in terms of the fallen nature in which we live, we can never get disappointed, can we? We accept that we are all by nature broken, messed up human beings who are more likely to do damage to each other than care for each other. And then when we do care for each other, we say, thank God. See how liberating that is? If we live, if we spend every day of our lives expecting that other people will do things and they don't, we will end up bitter. We will end up discontented. But when we realise that every good thing comes from God above, and it might be worked out by other people doing stuff, we realise a sense of peace. I can live today whether it comes to me or not. If it comes to me, if it's provided for me, that's great. I thank God. I, I thank the church in Philippi as well. But I thank God first. Because he's realized this. My comfort in this situation is not in that relationship horizontally. My comfort is in that relationship. And then finally, thirdly, in this point of a model of, uh, of comfort and contentment, it's this. It's finding the point of realization that no matter what is going on here, no matter what does or doesn't come from this side or any other quarter, no matter what people say, no matter what people do, I am in God's hands. And what is going on whether I feel it or not, is the best according to his grace and his mercy and his plan. You say, Paul, that is ridiculous. You're sat in a Roman cell and you're not able even to, to carry on the work. You're not able to carry on this ministry that you've been given. How can you possibly say, this is a good thing? Well, actually, we see it in the final verse, uh, verses of the book. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. <laughs> what? Especially those of Caesar's household. How did Paul get to reach people in Caesar's household? By being in prison in Rome. He's got a vision, he's got a window, a contentment that says I can be here and it's okay, it's good, it's fine. 
because it's in God's plan. How many times each day do you and I express our discontentment and our frustration? How many times? Be honest. How many times do we express our frustration with one situation or another, what somebody said, what somebody's done, what hasn't happened, what has happened? How many times? What we're actually saying is this. God, you've got it wrong. It shouldn't happen like this. It would be better if it happened another way. That's, that's what's going on inside. Are we, are we honest enough to see that the God who created the world, who holds all things in his hands, who, who is able to say that everything works together for good for those who love God, everything, that means that your days and my days are intertwined in a way which I cannot understand so that everything that is going on is for our good, even when it seems as though it's really bad. It's for my good. Even if it's stripping me a little bit of my self-dependence, uh, if it's stripping me of, and making me realize that I am, I am just totally driven by a self-centered attitude, if it's stripping me of realizing that I am depending on my own strength to make decisions. If it's stripping me of all of that, it's a good thing, isn't it? And God says that is exactly what is going on. I will strip you of all your self-dependence. And you know what? That is the best thing that can possibly happen. Because you will be discontented as long as you carry on relying on yourself. You'll carry on thinking, why not this? Why not that? Why did she say this? Why did he do that? Frustration, bubbling, bubbling, bubbling. And then we say, it's in his hands. I can be content no matter what happens. So finally, and very quickly, why is Paul able to see this as a lasting contentment? What he's saying here is the outworking, the kind of practical experience of what he's been describing in the rest of the book. In the rest of, the, in fact, on three occasions, chapter 1, verse 6 and verse 10, chapter 2 and verse 16, he talks about uh, the day of Christ. He, he's living his life today in first century Rome or 21st century Yorkshire, and he's thinking to himself, I am living today knowing that there is going to come a day of Christ. What does that mean? He's got his mind worked out. He knows how it works. He knows how the world works. He sees this. At the very centre of the whole of the history of this world is one man, Jesus. Jesus was there at the very beginning when God created the world. He's there at the very end when God ends the world. He is God who begins and ends. 
He is God. And at one point he came into this world. And as he's described in various points, he says, Jesus is the Christ, the promised one. He lived, he died, he came back to life, and he returned to heaven with a purpose. And the purpose is the day of Christ. What is the day of Christ all about? It's the day in which Jesus is finally seen by the whole of creation as king of everything. What do you think happens for people who have believed that in this world? What do you think happens? People who have lived their life saying, or lived even a part of their life saying, or even lived the last few moments of their life saying, Jesus is the Lord. What happens? He welcomes those who believe and trust in him into eternal contentment. Eternal contentment. An eternal experience and life which is never knocked off course. Which is never filled with challenge, problem, difficulty, hardship. That's why Paul is able to say, I can live these few years. It's just a few years. Might be a few days. Doesn't matter whether it's a few years or a few days because I am living now knowing that I will be eternally content. I'm happy with that. I can do that because I know there is something greater. And what is that contentment? It's the contentment to know that by trusting in Him, even when I realize what I am really like what we said earlier even when I realize what I am really like I can know that I am forgiven that is contentment one of the great psychiatrists I forget his name he said this made a comment he said I think it was 70% I think something, some significant number of people who came into his uh, consulting room, he said they would leave contented if they just knew they were forgiven. That's why Paul is able to say, I can look to eternity content. Because I know that even though I stand absolutely dead, pan, guilty, I'm forgiven. I can stand before God and what's in that cupboard back there, you know, the skeleton in the closet, I can invite Jesus, come with me, let's open the doors together. You know, when I was there and they gave me the coats and I said yes, 
throw the stones at Stephen and the stones rained in and he lost his life. You know when I was there, when that family was separated as I imprisoned the father and left the mother and children destitute, when I was there, there's the stuff going on in my closet. Come with me, Jesus. And Jesus says, yes. And that is nailed to the cross. All of the guilt. And Paul says, then I am content. I can live now in total peace. Because I know eternity is going to be filled with contentment because of what you have done. Why do we live such discontented lives when that is the offer of Jesus? Why do we do it? Why don't we say, I want you to be my Lord, my God, my King. Take my life, take every day that I live. Strip me of my self-dependence. Allow me to live a contented life in you. Because I know it's only for a few years. No matter what happens. It can be a crisis. But I know eternity will outweigh it. A million trillion times. Are we living with that secret of contentment?